0: Father, we thank you again for um, just your sovereignty. We thank you that we can entrust our souls to you as a good creator, as a good sustainer, and 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 um, as a sovereign of of all things. And so, Father, we commit Nancy to you now. We ask that you would just touch her body and bring healing and uh, restore her, Father, her senses and just everything that's going on inside of her body. Body, you know it all together, and we are. Uh, content to trust you with that so we pray that you would be glorified now as we look at your word the word that you have ordained for us today in Jesus name amen amen well we are in Hebrews chapter 13 uh, today and what I want to do is I want to read this scripture to us we're going to be going all the way down to verse 6 today and so as we always do we stand in honor of the reading of God's word so why don't you stand one more time for me and read uh, this scripture, follow along as I read it, okay? This is what the Word of God says. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is our helper I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Amen. You may be seated. Now obviously we're coming off of the heels of some of the most profound covenant theology found in all of Scripture here in the book of Hebrews. And really, as it pertains to this passage, and even earlier, at the end of chapter 12, we're looking at what I want to call today the covenant life of the church. Because that is what this is talking about. Uh, no longer talking about simply abstract theology. We're, now we're talking about concrete truth, uh, at least concrete uh, concepts and ideas that touch our everyday lives. And this began, as you know, uh, earlier as he was ending his section in chapter 12. This began by telling us how we ought to be devoted to God. There's a little bit of a shift in the text as we go from devotion to God to what we could say, devotion to one another. But devotion to God is really the foundation of it all. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12, just to kind of bring us back into the exegetical stream of this text. It says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that's sort of the operative overarching truth of this whole practical section, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There it is, under the banner of this consuming fire imagery of God. The Scripture is calling us to live in a certain way, to live in fear of God, to live under the awesome reality that our God is a holy God. A consuming fire was the imagery of God's presence, either to bless or to judge. That's the way the Old Testament uses it. And so here these exhortations, as practical as they are, are ultimately rooted back in the transcendent reality of who God is and the nature and character of the kingdom that you and I belong to. Beginning with the first item on the list, therefore, the author exhorts us to love one another. Verse 1 says, Let love of the brethren continue. Uh, No surprise that the author here begins with an exhortation to love one another. You know, love is basically the most fundamental, potent ethic of the kingdom. And to be in covenant union with God and to be in covenant life with one another, this love ethic is to mark our lives. It's to characterize us. It should be the dominant virtue that motivates everything that we do both towards God and towards one another. Love. After all, it was Jesus who told us in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then verse 35 is what I mean here. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. I suppose that what we need to do is, first of all, distinguish this love from any other sort of love that we can think about. Matter of fact, you have probably heard culture, um, pundits on the news, media, even postmodern people on a college campus, tell us, just love one another. Uh, Doesn't the Bible tell you to love? But you see, you understand, this love is not some sort of generic moral maxim laid down for the benefit of all, of all humanity. Sure, humanity will benefit from this commandment if they seek to follow it, but the reality is, is that love in this context is confined to the covenant people of God. Once again, it is what distinguishes us. It is, um, it is what characterizes us as Christians. It should distinguish us and separate us from the different types of loves and definitions of loves that you can find anywhere else in this world. A love that is rooted in the redemptive love of God for your soul and mine. And that that saving, redeeming, redemptive love of God is then turned back toward one another. The Apostle Peter, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, "...since you have in obedience to the truth..." You notice that love is based on truth... Uh, it's not based on feeling or emotion. It's not based on the whimsical ups and downs of this life. It's based on concrete truth. He says you purified your souls for what? This is a purpose clause. For a sincere love of the brethren. Fervent love. He says fervently love one another from the heart. In other words, no superficial love. uh no love that is just uh, lip service to each other. John tells us that we are to love not only in word but also in deed. That we're to lay our life down for each other. First John chapter three. The love of believers is rooted first of all in authentic salvation, and it conforms to the commands of God, and it, it displays the glory of God in the church. Matter of fact, uh, Hebrews here. Is you're gonna see that there is a series of love statements that the author is gonna make. He's gonna say, uh, there needs to be brotherly love, and then he's gonna shift his focus from merely or, or strictly brotherly love to love of strangers. As a matter of fact, Notice the text, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And so that, that word there, when he says to show hospitality, the word there, philosynios, literally means loving strangers, loving the unfamiliar, loving people that you don't know very well. Uh, it, it means that the Christian is to be a, an extension of God's love to people that don't know His love. We have the unique opportunity to love strangers on behalf of God it's really powerful really potent and then later on in the exposition he's going to remind us he just jumped down to verse 5 he's going to tell us make sure you keep your character free and then he says from the love of money Uh, that's a that's a negative type of love no love of money it's very interesting love 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 is a powerful affection and therefore we have to be very responsible with the way that we love. Notice that this love, this Christian love if we just back up to the to the to the statement that opens this whole section, let love of the brethren continue abide, remain, let it keep going. Why? Well, because if you just back up for a little bit, you understand that this is part of the eschatology of the new covenant. Um, look with me, At verse, beginning, well, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 12, to remind us that in the eyes of the author of Hebrews, there are things that are going to be shaken, and then there are things that are going to remain. He says, His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised saying, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And the expression, yet once more, denotes, watch this, the removing of the things that can be shaken, as of created things. So that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Well, love of the brethren, that spiritual virtue, that gracious Christian virtue, is part of the unshakable kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. The agape love that we have among us today is of the same germane affection that will exist in heaven. That love that is going to be pure love, undiminished, celestial love that will abide in the kingdom of God forever. It's intentional. It's an exhortation. Let it continue. In other words, we have to be on top of our love. <laughs> We've got to manage it. We've got to nurture it. We've got to cherish it. Uh, we need to cultivate it. We need to be systematic about it even. I put the word systematic because I thought, how do we do this uh, practically? How do we do this in a meaningful way? Well, you may have to intentionally develop a way to do this. For example, you can develop a way to have people over to your house to love them. And that may be that you whip out a calendar and you start jotting down, okay, once a week or once a month or a couple times a month, we're going to have people over for dinner Maybe people in the church that we don't even know get to know them, listen to their testimony, hear what God is doing in their lives, see what sort of reciprocal spiritual benefit we can derive from each other. It's not shallow. Uh, this is not superficial fellowship. Uh, this is spiritual. Sadly, today, too much in the Christian church Church's fellowship consists of superficial, surface-level, mundane subjects that have nothing to do with our spiritual lives. But we are to love one another in Christ, in the faith. This is part of covenant life, after all. And again, let's move on to the next verse. It's not just, because we've got items on the list today. It's not just love of the brethren so that's kind of an internal, but oh, the fine balance of Christian life. It's not just what we do among ourselves, but also in a sense, evangelistically, um, reaching out. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Interesting, right? Now, I understand that this verse is often used of people's personal angelic encounters Books are written about it, and usually they cite this verse. Uh, remember though, didn 't they just say they didn 't even know it? So if you 're writing a book about an angelic encounter that you had, that means you knew it. well, you don 't qualify. Not supposed to know it. First of all, second of all, I think the real meaning of this text means that these angelic encounters are not something that is contemporary in the culture of the church. people walking in sharing their angelic, angelic visitations. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about redemptive history. That in the history of redemption, the subject of hospitality has had such a role in redemptive history that you even see God theophanically working in hospitality where do you see this probably more than any other place genesis chapter 18 and 19 that is where abraham welcomed strangers into his tent that turned out to be angels and as a matter of fact one of them was none other than the angel of the lord now should you expect any time soon to have any angels in your tent you probably don't just not only do you not live in a tent but I would say no. But what's the principle? Remember, the focus here is not in the, in the miraculous visitation of angels, but in the practical component of hospitality. It is showing us that hospitality is such a tool. It, 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 hospitality is the occasion upon which you never know what's going to transpire When you open yourself to be hospitable to people, you never know what opportunity God is going to give you by being hospitable. And in the context here, to challenge us, it is hospitality to strangers. One thing about living in modern, western, American, especially North Texas, huge brick houses, is that we're not very good at letting people in. We're all in our own little fortified palace. <laughs> it's like a brick fort, for crying out loud. All that's missing is a molt in the middle of it. But you know what I mean. We're not good at this. Let's just admit it and talk about it. We're not very good at reaching out. Now, understandably so, because there are real dangers out there. I mean, so much so that, have you just noticed... Um, Everyone seems to have a surveillance camera outside of their door now. I hate it because I hate being on camera, number one. Number two, you walk up to people, ding dong, you're on camera. And someone's probably hacking your image anyway. We're professionals at keeping people out, not bringing people in. And yet, we are called to be Christ-like in this regard. To extend ourselves to those who are not uh, lovely. To extend ourselves to those who are not powerful, influential. To just be hospitable to people that may not benefit us in any other way other than that we get to benefit them. Matter of fact, if you look at Genesis chapter eighteen, verses three to five, uh, Abraham here, and this, I, I'm almost tempted to say this is what was in the mind of the author, as many exegetical commentaries will point out. And if so, in Genesis chapter eighteen, verses three to five, Abraham saw, had such a uh, uh, he had such a drive for hospitality in this way that he even tells the angels he didn't know they were angels at the time, but he even tells these strangers he tells them if I have found favor in your eyes. Come in. See, he saw that as a gracious gift of God for him to be able to show this kind of hospitality. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be generous knowing that what is our house? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a committed Christian, then your home should be an evangelistic hub. It should be a divine Embassy of the Kingdom of God, where you bring people into your house and you share with them the greatest news that they 've ever heard over you know a cup of coffee, a piece of cheesecake. make sure to invite me when that 's happening. I'll never forget I was in Israel with Ray Comfort and some people, and um, the reason why this is so notable because we were in Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine we were up in a apartment complex about 10 stories up on the roof they were doing some filming and ray and i were the last to leave the photo fo- the, the the filming shoot or whatever and on the way down all these all these uh, uh, palestinian kids came running up to us pleading with us to come into their house it was the most adorable thing i ever seen and then what ended up happening we ended up in a catholic house uh, of all places but a, a lady greeted us at one of the apartment doors and said, oh please come in without English, she just literally physically grabbing us. And the only thing we could discern was the word Turkish coffee. I make Turkish coffee for you. (laughs) She she was not going to take no for an answer. She literally constrained us. And there we were inside of a little apartment with an Arabic speaking family drinking Turkish coffee. Well, I was because Ray doesn't drink coffee. And so I said, you better drink it. I think you know, culturally speaking, it's insensitive if you don't drink this coffee. Nope, nope, thanks. Don't want it. So not only did I experience, you know, uh, that level of hospitality, uh, but I had to drink his Turkish coffee as well. And so I experienced what it feels like to be on rocket fuel. It was Unbelievable. Um, And then his son-in-law, Easy, walked in who speaks Arabic. And so we were able to finally have a conversation with the family. But that's the way that we should be. Don't push people out. push, Pull people in. Maybe it doesn't have to be in your home. But just, just let people in. What's the next thing? Well, the author is not just concerned with the hospitality, the love of the brethren, the hospitality that may exist among strangers. And by the way, you ever wonder, does this have any logical bearing on the book of Hebrews so far? In other words, is this a connection or did he just kind of randomly pick a few important topics to talk about? Well, I would remind you of what's been happening uh, in this letter. Turn to chapter 10 and why these exhortations may be particularly challenging for this church. Why is it particularly challenging? Because the next item on the list is not only love of the brethren and and, and showing hospitality, but the next item on the list is enduring persecution because you remember what's taken place with this church. Chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is, after knowing the gospel, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, that is especially dealing with the Jews who, as the apostle Paul says, his own countrymen who persecuted him. He says, you endure this great conflict of suffering, then he defines it partly by being made a public spectacle. In other words, they were, they were social outcasts. They were thrown out. You see this even in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. You even see this when people were turning and following Jesus. The, the Sanhedrin was giving out uh, 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 giving out pronouncements that people were to be put out of the synagogue for identifying with Jesus. And to be put out of the synagogue was to become a social outcast in your community. I mean, it was so uh, uh, incredibly uh, uh, stigmatic to be put out of a synagogue like that. But at any rate, he says, you were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those that were so treated. So identifying with persecuted people. And then it says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now we get to see the extent. Now we see the gravity of what these people have gone through. Prison, we're talking about prison? And you even accepted joyfully the plundering or the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So now there is a call to endure persecution to a people where persecution is not theory it's um, it 's not just a hypothetical situation; this is real life. This is what they 've been confronting with confronted with, therefore he says in verse three, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them now i don 't know about you, brothers and sisters, but i don 't presently know any Christian who is in prison because of his or her faith uh, so we have to really try to imagine what it is like for untold numbers of our brothers and sisters around the world for whom this is a daily reality. It isn't for us, but it is for countless, numerous, thousands of Christians around the world. Absolutely. And so... What the apostle or the author here in Hebrews wants us to do is he wants us to sympathize with the persecuted church. And so I want to stir you up by way of reminder that there is a persecuted church out there and that you should care. Uh, You should read... um, magazines, Voice of the Martyrs. You should be aware of what's going on in India, what's happening in the Middle East. Um, Lord willing, next year, hope my wife's not in here, I want to scare her to death again, but the plan next year, and I'm already sort of having conversations, I want to visit the Middle East next year, and I think that's going to happen. So I, I can't wait to meet brethren in the Muslim world um, that are suffering persecution and just just to be among them just to hear what they're going through. I, I can't wait for that. I hope that I hope God in his providence allows me to experience that because I've been around persecuted people before um, I was able to go to Africa back in 2000 2001. I was in Africa for a short time and we're ministering to Sudanese people who had been taken, displaced because of Muslim persecution. They were given some land in Uganda, in Kiryandongo. They were told, here's a plot of land, here's some tarps. Good luck. And they literally lived like that. And every, I mean, you couldn't find a Sudanese person who was not intimately related to persecution. Who had not lost someone, who had not lost a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, someone, a friend, to persecution, and much, much worse. The point here is, be sympathetic. How are we to be sympathetic? Well, look at the logic. As though you were with them. So the sympathy has to be real. Uh, You have to try to identify with the persecuted church. God, forgive us. For forsaking and forgetting the persecuted church, um, if you have trouble praying as a family because you don 't know what to pray for, bust out Operation World and pick a country that 's under persecution i mean it 's that easy. It says, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourself are also in the body. You know what it means to have a physical body. You know what aches and pains feel like. Now imagine being afflicted because of nothing other than your faith. We should be able to sympathize and we need to remember. The Apostle Paul would often ask and request prayer in this way. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the Word of God is not imprisoned. He suffers hardship even to imprisonment. And let me tell you, first century Roman prisons are not these Marriott hotel rooms that prisoners get today here in America. Where they get, you know... These nice clean meals and they have a cafeteria and they get to watch television and go work on the computer. No, it's a dungeon. I visited one of those dungeons in Caesarea by the sea. They took us down to one of the lowest dungeons that would have uh, uh that would have been part of a, the Roman province there and uh, uh and this and, and I'll never forget the tour guy said these lower dungeons was the place where all the sewage and all the filth would trickle down and and, and basically it was like living in a sewer. Could it be that the apostle Paul spent time in one of those kind of dungeons? We don't know. But we are to remember that this principle really ultimately goes back to Jesus, I, I am so um, I, I am so excited uh, um, because of going through Hebrews, just to how often what goes on in Hebrews and much of the new theology of the New Testament goes back to the brilliance of Jesus' his own sayings, his own teachings. For example, Matthew chapter twenty-five, Jesus says this. Remember verse thirty-five. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Think about what we just got done seeing here in Hebrews. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus goes on to say, after the disciples said, when did we do that? He said, well, anytime you do it to a brother, you do it to me. Incredible. Next item on the list. He moves from persecution to marriage. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So not only are we to abide in love, endure persecution, the next thing is we ought to honor marriage. Now, Interestingly enough, our Sunday school and now this verse here coincide and overlap, and that is not by design; that is by providence. So God apparently wants us talking about family in marriage right now in this season. Praise the Lord, we need it. What is He saying? What He's saying is that marriage is to be held in honor. Timaeos, that 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 word implies that you're looking at something as if it has not just value, but even precious value. That's a word. It's precious. It's so valuable. It's a, a word that's used in Revelation of precious stones. It's, it's, it's a precious value. And that's what marriage is. So so think about it. Think about what's, what's happened uh, over the course of the book of Hebrews. We have learned all sorts of different things about the book of Hebrews, right? We've gone through institutions, we've gone through ordinances, types, ceremonies, shadows. We've learned that Christ is not only better, but He is permanent. And because of that, there are certain aspects of old covenant life that have become obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, for example. The author has dealt with the Sabbath. We learned the true nature of that. We understood the typological function and the eschatological function of that. We looked at the tabernacle. We understood the heaven and earth dualism that is represented and typified in the earthly tabernacle. We also looked at the the priesthood and how the priesthood is ultimately temporal in comparison to a superior priesthood in the uh, Melchizedekian priesthood. That's the word I was looking for. No wonder he said some things are difficult. The name is difficult. Christ has a permanent priesthood. We look at the law. The law made nothing perfect. We looked at angels and Christ has a superior ministry to the angels. In other words, as we move from one covenantal economy to the next, what about marriage? Well, marriage is to remain a steadfast ordinance of the church. To be held In honor, we're to honor our marriages. And this is great because people have perverted this simple exhortation. Uh, He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all except the Roman Catholic priesthood. No, that's not what it said. Oh, because Catholicism has this celibacy principle for their priests which Rome got wrong on top of the priesthood. Augustine also introduced a false understanding of marriage. He believed that intimacy in the marriage relationship necessarily is sinful to some degree. I disagree. Scripture says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from God. The marriage relationship is blessed. The marriage relationship is a gift. And the commandment for marriage and intimacy in marriage is a command of scripture. It is not an option. Notice how these two things go together. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And this is a connecting clause. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, you will notice a bunch of italicized words in these, in this, uh, um, in this verse, right? Is to be held italicized, um, and the marriage, the word marriage italicized, is to be. That word is italicized. Why? Well, because there is a possibility that this could be either indicative or imperative. I fall in line with the imperative uh, mood of this. Passage that what is being told to us here is not marriage is honorable among all. No, no, no. That's the indicative. It's actually a command. It's a, it's an exhortation. It, it, it is something that we have to maintain. It is something that's being prescribed, not just described. It is prescribed that marriage has to be honored it it is prescribed that the marriage bed has to be undefiled and then the principle is for fornicators and adulterers god will judge now as i said before this raises to me and it gives me a little bit of a it gives me a little bit of a of a reason of a, of a, a legitimate reason why i can jump up and down on the subject of marriage and family that we talked about in sunday school by the way Uh, If you were not in Sunday school, these Sunday school lessons that are coming on marriage and family out of uh, Ephesians chapter 5, this is mandatory listening for us. Uh, If you're not there physically, you need to get on the church website and listen to every session in the coming weeks on marriage and family. You should be doing it anyway, but I'm scolding you specifically on this. It's so important! It's so important in a world that has gone crazy on the subject of marriage and family. How much crazier do you want the culture to go? It's absolutely crazy. And therefore, just like Christian love is to be distinct and different from the world, in the same way, marriage and family, Christian marriage and family, should be distinct from the world as well. It should be superior in every way. That means our roles are to be superior superior, and and we are to follow our roles to such an extent that we become a shining light in a dark world of what it means to be a husband, to be a wife, of what marriage is all about. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. We're living in a time where nefarious agents are at work in our society today to eradicate the word family altogether. They don't want the word family even to exist. We live in a selfish, narcissistic, egotistic, self-destructive culture that will stop at nothing until all of human anthropology has been deconstructed and reconstructed in in the vain imagination of some liberal somewhere. Well, we could probably specify. but We are told several things that I want to point out here about marriage. And the first thing that I want to point out is that marriage is honorable, period, case closed. We can never have a view of marriage and family that is less than what Scripture says that it is. It is a gift. It is a blessing. The apostles themselves... Many of them married, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Peter took a believing wife, for example. Uh, the, Paul went so far, 1 Timothy chapter 5. He, he went so far as to say, Well, young widows who have lost their husband, uh, instead of attempting a life of celibacy in the name of being spiritual or in the name of maybe serving the Lord, maybe, they are to instead, first Timothy five fourteen, get married. Bear children, keep house, give, give the enemy no occasion for reproach, that is through immorality. And here the word of God is concerned with the universal dignity of marriage because notice what it says, to gamas, and pasin. It is honorable among all. We never, ever should undermine the concept, the teaching, the worldview that esteems this great ordinance of the church and of the, really the ordinance of creation, which is marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, marriage is something God came up with. It's His idea, not ours. He defines the parameters of it. We do not. He tells us what marriage is and what marriage is not. Period. Uh, our world is getting so crazy today that people want to define marriage in any way possible. And I want to spare you the sordid details of where our culture really is at, but I I almost want to weep when I think about a culture that is, it's like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says that the world and the fetal mind is greedy for every kind of impurity. It's not enough. It's never enough. Our our culture has an insatiable hunger to distort God's good, moral, pure design for marriage and family. They'll stop at nothing. Therefore, we're also called to sanctify marriage. You notice that? It says not only is marriage to be held in honor among all, it says the marriage bed is to be undefiled, or to be yeah, to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because we need this exhortation as well. But uh, there is a way for us to safeguard our marriage bed, and that is from within and from without. Of course, from without is fornication and adultery. From within is neglect. Uh, So this is kind of grown-up talk here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the Apostle Paul makes no qualms about it, we are to follow his instructions or suffer the repercussions. Verse 1. Now concerning these things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That I think is definitely speaking about extramarital mar- marital relations. He says, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. So there's the confines of monogamy. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and their conjugal duties are in view, meaning intimacy the the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. How do you know? Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And then verse 5 tells us that the apostle Paul is not ignorant and naive or gullible about what goes on in our homes. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again intimately so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Very clear what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here that, that we should never hesitate to fulfill that intimate aspect of relationships that we have in marriage to one another without hesitation, we should not hesitate to do that. It is a safeguard. It is wise for God to do this, to give us this prescription so that we do not go seeking out other fountains. We can also see the wisdom of marriage in many, many different ways. First, by the warning that's given here, uh, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, in other words, be not deceived what a man sows he will reap it shows that any defiling of marriage through extramarital relationships runs the risk of coming under God's judgment because of the universal principle that God will judge fornicators and adulterers i don't think we really i don't think we really grasp the gravity of what what paul is saying or what uh, scripture says here and then what paul says elsewhere In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) Folks, you understand we're living in a time where Christians refuse to even read that verse. I said Christians, not the world. Uh, We're living in a time where because I ask college students this all the time, sometimes on a weekly basis, do you agree with the Apostle Paul when he says X, Y, and Z? Well, I don't know about that part, but love everyone. (laughs) Now, folks, it's very serious. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul says, it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. It is the wrath of an almighty God. It is the wrath of a God that is a consuming fire. And here we are being reminded why the marriage bed has to be protected because God is a God of wrath. And yes, even as a Calvinist perseverance of the saints believer, this should elicit fear as the means by which God is going to cause you to persevere to the end. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is to be protected. We see the wisdom of marriage also by the effect that it has, not not just the warning that is associated here, but the effect that it has on society. Notice what it says. Marriage is to be honored among all, all all marriage is the building block of humanity it is the starting point of the family when the husband and wife relationship is not properly established there's no future for the family this is why homosexual relationships is doomed from the very start without marriage families cannot be forged children cannot be produced in a safe environment And existing families are shattered and torn apart by failure to secure this most basic social unit of all. When the marriage fails, children fail. When families fail, society fails. Because of the unwillingness on the part of selfish individuals, children are often stand to lose the most from this social breakdown. Children are often forced to be raised by one parent. Usually the mother. And she's usually stretched so thin that she cannot provide or protect or, or properly guide her children with any kind of authority whatsoever. It is total dysfunction. It is not God's design. The failure of our culture to uphold God's design has resulted in untold numbers of casualties where individuals are broken Children are often abused and neglected. Families are weakened. So much so that it creates a social crisis even that impacts the entire nation, both ethically and economically. I know I'm going off a little bit on this right now, but we need it. I mean, we would even would we even have a welfare system if in each home there was a real man and a real woman a real family? Would we even need a welfare system? This is why so many inner cities are destroyed because of the family. Because of the lack of the family, rather. Because families are eroded and the basic structure of society is weakened. The foundations are destroyed. And what can a culture do at that point? The father's out of the picture. the The mother... Settles for anyone who will take the void, fill the void. The father should have filled. And children lose trust in everyone and everything. I see this so clearly at college campuses where students that have a background like this, where the, they're coming from weak families, weak structure, weak parenting, weak father, weak mother... No example, no backbone in the home. And now I'm dealing with them and they're 19, 20, 21 years old. And guess what? They trust no one and they believe nothing. And that is all, not all, but that is definitely partly owing to the complete obliteration of God's design for marriage and for family. Beyond the experience though of common grace, ultimately marriage is a social issue. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You know this verse. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Why is marriage to be so sanctified, so honored, so esteemed, so uh, um, a set apart in the life of the Christian? Because it is a gospel issue, even as we talked about earlier. Well, brothers and sisters, obviously we can spend all day talking just about that, but we have one more item on the list, and that is contentment. Abiding in love. Enduring persecution, honoring marriage, and pursuing contentment. Now that is very intentional. Pursuing contentment. You see that there? Because it's the opposite of pursuing money. Look at what he says here. Go down to verse 5. Another love statement, but this time it's in the negative. So love one another, love strangers. Now verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Wow, what a magnificent portion of scripture. Perhaps I should have left it for next week. But i got to be honest, I'm a little eager to get to something other than Hebrews. Not because I'm tired of Hebrews, but because I'm getting excited about other things. What an incredible exhortation, right? What is this exhortation telling us? What is the sum of it? The sum of it is be so satisfied in God. Live in such a way that you are so satisfied in God that it makes it very, very clear to yourself and to the world that money is not your God, that you don't live for it, uh, it doesn't hold you, it doesn't have you, it doesn't possess your heart, it is not an idol, and if it is, hurry up and tear it down, because that idol will hurt you. First Timothy chapter six, verse seventeen. you ready? Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may lay hold of that which is life indeed. You know what is not life indeed? The pursuit, the idolatrous pursuit of money is not life indeed. You know how you know that? Every trinket you buy, you get tired of. It's not enough for Donald Trump to own one resort. It's not enough for Donald Trump to have one skyscraper. He's got to have another one. Many of those, does he even visit anymore? Do you even know what he's built up to this point? Now remember the context. Things that can be shaken and things that cannot be shaken. The present evil age is telling us that possessions, money, the pursuit of these things, these are things that will be shaken. In other words, they won't last. They're transient. They're temporal. They're temporary. They're finite. But contentment in God... That is eternal in the heavens. I can't wait for that aspect of heaven. Can you? Where you are finally, after all your restless, restlessness in this life, after all your pursuits and grasping for the wind, can you imagine for the first time in your entire life being perfectly content? Jeremiah Burroughs says, we are most like God when we are content. Because God is content, because God is perfectly happy with himself, And that's what we're called to be. And then he says, he quotes the Old Testament. did you notice that? He quotes this "glorious, precious, redemptive promise, "I will never desert you." I will, and he says, "Nor will I ever,, no, nor will I ever forsake you." So that you will confidently say, The Lord is my helper. He, We will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118. But in quoting Psalm 118, what he does is he strings along. Now this is very interesting. Listen to this. He strings along not an exact citation of any one scripture. This is what scholars kind of sit back and go, Huh. Because the language is similar, but it's not any one text. Matter of fact, the commentator suggests several texts that fall in line to... Maybe this is what the author was directly quoting. You ready for these texts? This is why it's important. Genesis chapter 28. God told Jacob, I will not leave you. He told Jacob, wherever you go, I am with you. Let's move down the corridors of time. Redemptive history goes on. Moses... Another servant. Deuteronomy 31. The Lord your God is the one that goes with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. Verse 8. Deuteronomy 31. Eight, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Let's move down the, hist- the corridors of time again. Redemptive history goes on. Joshua Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. What's going on here? Jesus tells His apostles, Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what's happening there is that the author is showing us that we, like the Old Testament saints and like the progression of history back then, we too, like them, are pilgrims on the way. And as pilgrims on the way, in the same way that Jacob, in the same way that Moses, in the same way that Joshua on the way to the promised land, in the same way as those pilgrims and those exiles, we too are pilgrims on the way that have the promise of God's abiding presence. And that that should be our everlasting contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. There's a double-edged sword to that. Brothers and sisters, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, what he's saying is that when you eliminate the component of contentment, godliness suffers in its value for your life. When you eliminate contentment, as an essential ingredient for your Christian life, for your Christian walk, that godliness will not be as precious to you. One more verse and I'll have everyone turn there. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. Could there be anything more Soul grounding than what Paul says here. I don't speak from want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I know how to live in prosperity. And in any... Look at how exhaustive. Any and every circumstance... Watch this now. I have learned the secret, the musterion, of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Brothers and sisters, contentment is not automatic. You're not just born with it. Matter of fact, I would say you're born with the opposite. You are born not to be content. You know how I know that? Four-month-old Eden. Man... She used to be content with that one little squiggly thing. Not anymore. She wants that. And then she wants the dog. And then she wants not just her Bible, but my Bible. She doesn't want to drool on herself anymore. She wants to drool on me. We are born. Like Augustine said, Oh Lord, we are restless until we find our rest in Thee. Father... We ask that You would make that a reality in our hearts, that our souls would land safely and securely in the metropolis of our all-satisfying God. Thank You, Lord, for this text. Thank You, Lord, for the, the practical items that You give us in Scriptures like this, that just they have such a way of putting these parameters next to us that we need, these reminders, these constant encouragements, practical living that we need. Again, Father, we lift up our sister Nancy to you. We pray that you would watch over her now, that you would heal her, restore her back to health quickly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.